Hey everybody, thanks again for joining us for this edition of SCF Online. Uh, today is gonna be our last talk in this uh, untakeable series. And uh, what we've been doing in this series is looking at the scriptures, looking at uh, uh, truths, at uh, things that we possess in Jesus, truths that are um, unshakable and unbreakable and untakeable, steadying, anchoring truths that secure us, hold us firm, and uh, propel us forward in a Jesus way of living. Uh, even when everything around us might be uncertain and changing, we can be held firm in these uh, truths, in these things that we possess in Christ. And so we talked about the forgiveness of God, the fact that God in Christ has forgiven us totally, 100%, past, present, and future. Untakeable forgiveness. We talked about the grace of God, the fact that God in Christ has accepted us fully, totally, 100%. Entirely accepted by God in Christ apart from any uh, performance-based religion fully accepted by God in Christ on moment one of day one of saying yes to Jesus before we ever lift a finger, before we ever uh, go to church or before we ever serve or give, accepted by God. That's grace, uh, unmerited favor, untakeable grace. And we've talked about our identity in Jesus, who it is that we are in Christ, that God in Christ has raised us up. We're seated with Jesus in heavenly places. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. We're chosen of God, holy, dearly loved. We're adopted sons and daughters, not just servants or slaves, but children of God. We're new creations in Christ, a, an untakeable identity. And so last week we started to talk about the love of God and we want to continue that conversation this morning. And so today we want to make four basic points about the love of God. Now the love of God is not basic. The love of God is anything but basic. It is indescribable. It is immeasurable. It is powerful. It is deep. It's beautiful. It's anything but basic, but the points that we're gonna to make today about God's love uh, are basic. And speaking of these basic points, let's begin with point number one, which is this. God's love propels godly living. Now, if you've been tracking with this teaching series over these last number of weeks, this point uh, might look familiar to you uh, because this is now the fourth time that we're making this point. When we talked about the forgiveness of God and we went to the scriptures and looked at what it teaches us about forgiveness, we made this point that, that the forgiveness of God propels godly living. That's what came out of the scriptures. When we looked at the grace of God and, and looked at the scriptures about God's grace, we made this point that the grace of God propels godly living. That's what came out of the scriptures. When we looked at our identity in Christ, who we are in Jesus, well, we made this point that our identity propels 
godly living. That's what came out of the scriptures. And now this morning we're looking at the love of God. We're making this point again. And I believe what we'll see as we look at um, some scriptures today, we're gonna see again that the love of God propels godly living. Now, even if you haven't tracked with us uh, in this series, maybe you're just jumping in today for the first time, this point probably will not surprise you. This is the kind of thing we expect to hear uh, in a church service. This is kind of something that I would expect and probably you would expect to hear in a Sunday talk, uh, like a Sunday pep talk of some sort. It's not unusual. It's expected to hear talk about the love of God and how motivating it is. But I guess the question that we can ask ourselves is this, do we really believe that? Do we really believe that the love of God is sufficient, efficient, and effective as a motivator to motivate us to godly living? I'm not sure we all always really believe that. In the church environment that I grew up in, a church environment for which I am very thankful, but a church environment that was um, a little unusual uh, in some ways. I'm not sure if any of us in that environment really believed that the love of God itself was a sufficient, efficient, effective motivator for godly living. We may have said that, on a Sunday, but then Monday through Saturday, we had something else that we thought was better, more effective as a motivator. We had rules, we had lists, we had uh, to-dos and don'ts. And we'd hear talk about the judgment of God and fearing the judgment of God and fearing reprisal. And, uh, you know, as I grew up as a, as a Christian kid and a Christian young teen, I grew up um, kind of fearing the Holy Spirit. I perceived the Holy Spirit maybe like a grade six kid might perceive the vice principal, right? I thought the Holy Spirit was kind of like the vice principal of the Trinity, the least fun of the three in one. I thought that the Holy Spirit would you know, would be the one to poke a bony finger in my chest, convicting whenever I uh, failed at the rules, the Holy Spirit would bring the conviction and make me feel bad about that. And those were the kinds of things, as I think back, those were the things that I felt like were the motivation for godly living. The rules that were kind of laid out for us and the bony finger of the Spirit poking um, and convicting. And certainly, we would all have agreed that God's love is, is wonderful and nice, but I think we felt like we needed something more than just God's love, something else, something more practical, something more efficient, something more effective to um, motivate godly living. And I think that um, that kind of thinking I believe, still uh, persists today. I continue to hear people, Christian people, who will say things like, well, 
The message of God's love is nice. The message of forgiveness and, and grace is nice. The message of our, of our newness in Jesus is nice. But if that's all that you say, if that's all that you preach, and you don't put in the part that creates the motivation, well, then you're not preaching and teaching the whole message. And really, if you drill down on that, what they're saying is we need God's forgiveness plus. We need God's grace plus. We need to understand our identity in Jesus plus. We need God's love plus. We need God's goodness and God's kindness plus something else to motivate us. God's love and grace and so on is nice. It's nice to hear about that on Sunday, but as far as a sufficient motivator, Monday through Saturday, I think we need something more. I think we need something else. But I think what we're gonna to see today as we go to the scriptures is that the scripture does not back up that notion. I think we'll find as we look at the scriptures today, we'll see that the message of God's love, the message of God's forgiveness, his grace, our identity in Jesus, that that message is itself sufficient, sufficient motivation for godly living. And so let's think about this, that God's love propels godly living. Let's look at a scripture. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. And it says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And so maybe this morning your desire uh, is, is, you know, God, I wanna, uh, I wanna live for you. I want my life to be effective for you. I, I wanna display your love, God, to others. And if that's your heart, if that's your uh, prayer today, uh, I certainly would not wanna discourage that at all. Not, uh, not in a million years would I wanna discourage that. But I wonder, have we focused sufficiently on taking in God's love, on receiving God's love? I think about my own, uh, my own preaching and teaching, and I'm not sure that I have sufficiently focused on that. I focused a lot on sharing God's love, a lot on transmitting God's love to others, but have I focused enough on receiving God's love? on taking it in, on soaking in God's love. Oh, what about you? As you think about your own life, is it possible that you have focused on output and not much on input? Uh, well, here in 2 Corinthians 5, um, I think Paul helps us uh, with, with this conversation. He gives us really a kind of an order of things here a divine design, if you will. He says the love of Christ compels us, motivates us, propels us. Well, what does that mean? Well, for starters, it means that we have to know how loved we are. We've gotta know how loved we are. If you don't know how loved you are by Jesus, then that love can't compel you. If you don't know how loved you are, that love can't 
propel you. It can't motivate you. This word uh, compels, as we see it in this verse, has to do with the idea of, of, uh, of uh, something welling up within us and permeating uh, our entirety, permeating our thinking, permeating our attitudes, uh, permeating our choices and our words and our responses. And so Paul is saying, let the love of Christ, the Christ who is in you, let the love of Christ well up within you and permeate all that you are and all that you do. I can't think of any uh, greater passage in all of scripture that describes love than 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We talked about that chapter uh, in months uh, past and looked at a few verses uh, in that chapter. It is a beautiful, beautiful chapter. I wanna take a moment and read some verses from 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 13. And as I read them, I want you to be thinking about the questions we've asked today. Is God's love enough? Is it sufficient as a motivator for godly living? Can we communicate God's love too much? Can we, um, can we cause people to become, um, to feel like they're so loved by God um, that they feel like behavior doesn't matter? and they can just go off in sin because God's love is unconditional. It's no strings attached. Is it a dangerous message? Can we overemphasize the message of love? Well, I think as we read uh, what Paul writes, I think the answer is no. Uh, we can't overemphasize the message of love. And uh, certainly, love does not lead us to sin. In fact, Paul will say quite the opposite. This is 1 Corinthians 13, verses four through eight. And Paul says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always perseveres. Love never fails. So God, I wanna be, be more patient. God, I wanna be kinder to people. You look down here at the bottom where it says love always perseveres. So God, I wanna, I wanna be the kind of person who perseveres. I wanna have, um, uh, have endurance in the face of, of hardship. And uh, so you see what the key is to all of that. The key is knowing God's love. And we've said before that generally speaking in churches, we've made kind of a mess of this uh, passage because we've looked at this and we've just taken out our notebooks or our yellow pads and we've begun to make lists of to-dos and we've approached it really in quite a religious fashion, trying to do love just right, trying to, trying to um, be patient and trying hard to be kind and trying hard to be humble and trying hard to persevere and trying hard and got to try harder and got to do better. And, uh, you know, we've approached this passage as if these characteristics of love are something that we produce. But it's, it's noteworthy that in this passage, 1 Corinthians 13, love is not a verb. Love is not a do verb in this passage. 
It's not about you doing. In fact, in this passage, love is a noun. A noun is a person, place, or thing, or idea. Love is something. In fact, perhaps more accurately, in this context, love is a someone. Love is a person, the person of love, and his name is Jesus. And so in this passage, Paul is saying, if, if we don't have love, if we don't possess the noun of love, if we don't possess the, the someone of love, the person of love, and his name is Jesus, then, then nothing else matters. It's just irritating religious noise without love. And in this passage, the uh, Greek word for love is agape. We've talked about that word before. Agape is the kind of love with which God loves us. It's a love that is unconditional, no strings attached. It's a love that is self-sacrificial. It's a love that ascribes worth, unsurpassable worth to others. So as we think about this um, agape love of God, is that message of agape love, is it a dangerous message to tell people? Can, can we overstate it? Uh, do we need to balance it with something else? Do we need to temper that message? Will people feel so loved that uh, they'll just kind of go off in crazy uh, directions? Well, what we see here, Paul is saying that when you possess the noun of love, when you possess the person of love, the love of Jesus, as we saw in that 2 Corinthians 5 verse, the love of Jesus wells up and permeates permeates our thinking, permeates our attitudes, permeates our, our uh, choices, and, and uh, permeates uh, everything, our words. And so Paul says, let the noun of love well up. And as the noun of love wells up and is permeated in your life, what oozes out is patience. Patience is not something that you work on. Patience is not something that you produce. Now, it's great to learn to count to 10. Uh, that's helpful. It's, it's, it, it can be helpful to read books on patience, but these, um, these attributes, these manifestations of love, patience, kindness, uh, humility, perseverance, uh, and so on, these are not to-dos that we add to our list. These, rather, are characteristics that ooze out from us as the noun of love, the person of love, permeates our lives from the inside. This passage has some similarities to another passage in Galatians chapter 5 that we often refer to as the, the fruit of the Spirit. Sometimes we call it the fruits of the Spirit rather than correctly referring to it as the fruit of the Spirit. And sometimes it's like, hey, what are you doing? Well, I'm just trying hard to do the fruits, trying to, trying to do the fruits of the Spirit. Oh, well, what, fruit, what fruits are you working on? Well, this week I'm working on love, and next week I'm going to work on joy, and the, the week after that I'm going to work on uh, peace and, and, and so on. Um, you, don't, you don't work on the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit, Right? And when you possess the noun of the Spirit, the Spirit wells up and permeates your life and the Spirit produces fruit. And same in this passage as we think about 
the noun of love, Jesus, who uh, is in us and wells up within us and permeates us. And as that happens, what oozes out is patience. Why? Because Jesus is patient. What oozes out is kindness. Why? Because Jesus is kind. You know, here's a, a simple little exercise you might try, uh, maybe even later today. It really only takes seconds. It's to sit down with your Bible and open it up to this passage, 1 Corinthians 13, specifically verses 4 to 8, and read this out loud, except wherever you see the word love, replace that with the name Jesus. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind, and so on. Here's what it sounds like as read by my friend Doug. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not boast. Jesus is not proud. Jesus does not dishonor others. Jesus is not self-seeking. Jesus is not easily angered. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus never fails. And so 1 Corinthians 13 is not so much about doing love as it is about possessing love, possessing the one who is love. We think about the fruit of the Spirit. It's not so much about trying to produce the fruits of the Spirit, but it's about possessing the Spirit and the Spirit welling up and permeating and producing whatever fruit um, the Spirit wants to produce through us in any given moment. And this is really important to uh, grab onto. It, here's one reason why, why it's important. Think of the fruit of the Spirit. Imagine that you're approaching the fruit of the Spirit like a to-do list. You're approaching it with self-effort. You're approaching it um, in, in rather religious fashion, you trying hard to do it. And so you're trying hard to do, let's say, patience. But what the Spirit is compelling is action. You can see how that in your self-effort, you can actually be working against what the Spirit is up to in any given moment. Well, let's look at another verse here. This is 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8. Peter says, above all, love each other deeply. That's a great phrase. Love each other deeply. Because love covers over a multitude of sins. Notice that it doesn't say love creates a multitude of sins, right? It covers over a multitude of sins. So again, we ask this message, can we overemphasize the message of love? If we make people feel like they're so loved by God, that this unconditional love, no strings attached love, are they going to sin more? Well, not according to Peter. That the message of love covers, not creates, but covers a multitude of sins. And I think what, what we'll see as we continue to look in the scriptures today, and as we think about the scriptures that we looked at when we talked about forgiveness and grace and our identity 
in Jesus, what we see is that God's love, his grace, his forgiveness, our identity in Christ are themselves sufficient motivation for godly living. And Peter seems to affirm that here with what he says, love covers over a multitude of sins. Love is not the problem, it's the solution. Love is the answer, uh, not the problem. Let's look at another verse here. This is Ephesians 3 and verse 19. And Paul says, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So this is Ephesians. Ephesians is the letter where um, Paul is explaining what it means to be filled with the Spirit, to be motivated and inspired by God's Spirit. And notice what Paul is saying here. Uh, here's the key to being filled to all the fullness of God. The key is knowing how loved you are by Jesus, knowing God's love and how loved you are by God. Have you ever seen an ad, uh, like maybe, maybe an ad for a movie that, that says something like this? If you see only one movie this summer, make it Top Gun. Uh, similarly, we could say, if you're gonna focus on only one thing in the Christian life, focus on the love of Jesus. It's the best focus any believer can have. I wanna go back a couple of verses here. This is Ephesians 3, 19. We're gonna leave it on the screen, but we're also gonna show 17 and 18 just uh, for some context here. So back to 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Notice that, where does Christ dwell? In our new heart, right? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love, rooted in love, grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God, to know how amazing the love of Jesus really is. That's what causes us to be filled up with a new motivation, welling up within us, animated and motivated from within. It's this incredible love of Jesus. And yes, that love of Jesus, as, as, as the noun of love wells up and is permeated in us and um, it's, it's, it's gonna go out through us to other people, but um, it starts with being a receiver. Before, you know, before we share it with others, we first must be a receiver. We gotta know. We gotta know how loved we are. We gotta know the love of Christ. We gotta soak in that love. Well, let's go to uh, our second point. God's love propels godly living. And secondly, God's love propels unity. Unity between each other in the body of Christ, the church. This is Romans chapter 15 and verse 30. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. How do you pray? You know, prayer is so fascinating and kind of mysterious, isn't it? And different Christian people pray in 
different ways. There are some Christians who memorize prayers, like wrote prayers, repeated prayers. Some uh, Christians pray in um, very um, flowery language, kind of like King James language with uh, these and thou's and loveth and uh, so on. Some Christians read prayers, maybe, uh, maybe ancient, really well-vetted prayers that have been part of church history for perhaps hundreds of years. Other Christians pray, um, and they're very spontaneous in the way that, that they pray. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this in your church background, but uh, prayer can at certain times become kind of a competition in the church. And it can become really quite silly. There are sometimes uh, certain people in the church will get the reputation as great prayers, and they'll be the ones who will get tapped on the shoulder to, to do the public prayers or to pray out loud in front of people or on special occasions and things like that, while other people would be super uncomfortable uh, doing that. And so prayer can become kind of a weird competition in the local church. And when that happens, it is always harmful and it's always damaging. Here's just one reason why. I have known Christians who um, have declined to participate in a small group because they felt they might be put on the spot and asked to pray out loud and they felt like they couldn't compete uh, in that. Well, my hope would be um, more and more, not just for SCF Online and, and Sobel Church, but for the Church of Jesus, that, that, that we would just feel free to be ourselves. That in prayer, we would be free to just be ourselves. And here in this verse, Paul is mentioning prayer, and it's prayer for him, prayer for him as a messenger of the gospel. And notice what he says, let the love of the Spirit, the love of the Spirit, let the love of the Spirit be your inspiration. Let the love of the Spirit for you, let the love of the Spirit for you motivate your prayers. Let the love of the Holy Spirit for you, motivate you to enter into the struggle of others by praying for them, thus creating unity. It really does. Let the love of the Spirit for you. We heard uh, an update from Pastor Dave just uh, you know, a matter of minutes ago. And... Um, you know, Dave, in his update, invites us to pray for him and invites us to pray for Lisa. Well, how would Paul um, advise us in that? Paul would say, folks, let the love of the Holy Spirit for you be your motivation for entering into the struggle of Dave and Lisa. And in so doing, you enter into their struggle. And all of a sudden, they're not quite so alone in that struggle. And all of a sudden, you're helping carry the weight of that struggle. It's an incredible thing. It's, it's, it's a mysterious God thing, a mystery of the Spirit. But unfortunately, a lot of people miss out on that blessing because they're intimidated 
by some uh, prayer competition. And unfortunately, a lot of people are left to struggle on their own because we're not joining in. When prayer is a competition in the church, it actually creates disunity. But Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 3 that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom, there's liberty. And so Paul's advice to you and to me would be to let the love of the Spirit for you free you up to enter into the struggle of others in prayer. That creates unity in the church. The love of the Spirit for you. Do you ever stop and think that the Holy Spirit loves you? I said uh, a bit ago that when I was a kid, I kind of was afraid of the Holy Spirit. I liked everything I heard about Jesus. Kind, compassionate, humble, forgiving, went to the cross for me, bore my sin. Like what's not to love about that? But the Holy Spirit, not so much. Disciplinarian, finger in the chest, convicting and so on. Well, Paul says here that the love of the Holy Spirit is the motivator to struggle together and to pray for one another, thus creating unity in the church. The love of the Holy Spirit for you, not just the love of Jesus for you, not just the love of the Father for you, but the love of the Holy Spirit for you. The, the Trinity loves you. You are loved by the three-in-one. The three-in-one is for you. And if the three-in-one is for you, man, who can possibly be against you? Well, let's go to another verse. This is Galatians 5, 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And so maybe your desire this morning, uh, you know, God, I want to serve you. Uh, I want my life to count for you. I want to serve others. I want to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Well, how do you do that? Well, here's the way. It's through love. How do you serve? You serve through love. And so to serve through love, you've got to first be receiving love, soaking in it. You've got to know how loved you are. And you got to soak in that love, kind of like you soak in a hot tub. I love hot tubs. I don't know about you. I don't have a hot tub. I've never had one. I hope to have one at some point in my life before I go to heaven. But probably even if I don't, um, I'm quite certain there's going to be hot tubs in heaven, so uh, everything will be okay. I find hot tubs just so soothing and relaxing and reinvigorating and, and healing. Um, I love soaking in a hot tub. Now, my wife does not. Uh, she, in fact, thinks hot tubs are gross. She has... Um, she doesn't want to sit in water that is being jetted about, that is uh, water and with other people and you know, water in proximity to people's nooks and crannies and, and that sort of thing. She just finds that gross and she wants nothing to do with it. For me, I'm fine with it. Probably boosts my immune system or something like that. Um, when I go to, uh, like when we go to a hotel, if... Uh, it's a, it's a significant consideration for me if that, if that hotel has a, has a hot tub. 
Like if there are two hotels and they're equal, one has a hot tub, one doesn't, well, I'll, I'll choose the one that has the hot tub every time, sometimes even paying a bit more just for the hot tub experience. And it doesn't have to be fancy. It can be the communal one just by the, by the pool. And man, I'm in there. It's so relaxing. I don't know if any of you have, I, I call it fidgety feet. Uh, sometimes my feet just are so fidgety. In fact, sometimes in the winter, you don't tell you, I, I go outside on my bare feet and I stick them in the snow to try and get them to calm down. I also have that restless leg thing. Have you ever experienced that? You go to bed, you're dead tired, but your legs feel like there's millions of bugs crawling around inside of them and it is impossible to remain still. Well, hot tubs help with fidgety feet and help with um, that, that restless leg kind of thing. It's so great. In fact, we were, I'm getting a little off track here, but we were at a hotel, would have been before COVID, so 2019 sometime in, in uh, Stratford. We had some tickets to a play, so we went and then we stayed over. And this hotel that we stayed at had not a hot tub, but it had like a big jacuzzi tub right in the room, like not in the bathroom of the room, but right in the room itself, right out in the open. It was awesome. And it was a jacuzzi tub. So I thought, well, Jane's gonna be able to enjoy that because it's not like a hot tub. This thing is empty, it's been washed, and you put in the plug and you fill the thing yourself. And then you crank on the jets and you just have a great soak. But she said, nope. I said, why? She said, because here, here's her theory, and she might be right. She said that underneath that tub, there is some unseen hidden plumbing. And you can drain the water out of that tub, but there's still water in those lines that has been in proximity to the, uh, to the like nether regions of strangers. And she says, nope, I'm out. Anyway, I filled that tub, filled it up as full as I could, got in, cranked on those jets, and just had an awesome soak. And I'll tell you what I was not thinking while I was soaking in that tub. I wasn't thinking about anybody else, just me, just soaking, just kind of receiving, replenishing, enjoying the recovery, the soothing. It was wonderful. I, at no time did I feel like, man, I need to get dressed and I need to run up and down this hall banging on people's doors saying, you need to get in your jacuzzi. You people need to experience what I'm experiencing. No, I never thought that even once. Friends, sometimes you just have to soak. Sometimes you just have to receive. Maybe that sounds selfish. I'll tell you, the message of religion will make you feel guilty about soaking. The message of religion will make you feel guilty about receiving and being soothed and restored by the love and the grace of God. But here's the truth, uh, SCF friends. We need to soak in the love of God. We need to know how loved we are by Jesus. We need to know it, we need to receive it, we need to be soothed by it, we need to, um, to just take it in. We need a good soak because it is out of that love that we serve. We serve one another through love. When people serve but not serve through love, they're always frustrated. And the people that they're serving are always frustrated. 
And when you serve in the church, but not through love, it really does nothing to build the kingdom. We need, to, we need to soak in the love of God. We need to know how loved we are. We need to receive it and then to serve out of that fullness. It is absolutely essential. Well, let's look at another verse here. This is Colossians 3.14. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. So you want to experience unity, start with love. This is not about trying hard. Put on love. No, it's put on what's been put in. Christ is in. He is love. The love of Jesus wells up, permeates, and then oozes out. Uh, Love oozes out because Jesus is love. Put on what's been put in. In fact, if we went back uh, to verse 13, we don't have this on the slide, but verse 13 is where Paul says, clothe yourselves with compassion and tenderness and kindness and so on. Clothe yourselves, like putting on articles of clothing, put on what's been put in. And over top of all those articles of clothing, put on love. It's, it's, it's the thing that holds the whole outfit together. And then if you went to the 15th verse, Paul starts to talk about the body of Christ and, and the peace in the body of Christ that just binds it together in unity. God's love propels godly living. God's love propels unity. And thirdly, God's love propels confidence. This is 1 John chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. And so again, we ask, we ask the question, well, is the message of, of love, is it risky? Can we overdo it? Can we teach it too much? Do we need to balance it? Well, no, because it's God's love that propels us to a place of confidence, a place of confidence where we as followers of Jesus don't need to be afraid of the end times. We don't need to be afraid of judgment. We don't need to be afraid of punishment. We don't need to be afraid whether we're a sheep or a goat because his perfect love pushes out fear. And as that fear gets pushed out by love, well, here comes the confidence. And you, Christian, you can be absolutely sure that you will not experience one ounce of judgment for your sins. You can be absolutely sure that you will not experience one ounce of uh, punishment for your sins. Why? Because Jesus took it all. And as you understand the love of God, it will push out that fear and bring in that confidence. Well, let's make our last point here. God's love propels godly living, propels unity, propels confidence, and number four, propels our love for other people. We're only gonna look at one uh, verse here. It's a familiar verse. You've probably memorized it. It's 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. Are we willing to really believe that? Are we willing to soak in the love of God, and then to live out of that fullness, loving others out of that fullness, knowing that we are loved by God, and then we love in light of that. We love in response uh, to that. We must receive. 
in order to transmit. It's an important principle. The only reason we love is because God first loved us. Well, let's wrap this up. God's love propels godly living. God's love propels unity. God's love propels confidence. And God's love propels our love for other people as we live out of that fullness of his love. Let me ask you, um, I guess in, in, in closing, let me ask you just one question, and it is this. Are you willing to live loved? Not are you willing to love. I'm quite sure that every one of you would say, yes, I'm willing to love. But are you willing to live loved? Are you willing to live out of the fullness, knowing how loved you are by God in Christ and to live out of that fullness, to live loved? Well, let's pray. Father, thank you today for your untakeable forgiveness, your untakeable grace, Thank you for our newness in Jesus. Thank you for your love. And even as we've uh, looked at these scriptures today about your love, man, we're not, gonna, we're not gonna tone that message down. We're not gonna try and balance it with something else. We're not gonna try and temper it somehow. We're gonna say together that it's enough. We want to embrace your love. Father, as your people together, we confess that your love is so good. It's trustworthy. And I pray that you would help us to take even a moment today to just sit and reflect on your love. To just take time and reflect on how loved we are by you. Father, Son, and Spirit, and that we would live out of that love, that we would live loved. Thank you for your untakeable gifts. In Jesus' name, amen.